if you continue to do the things that are helpful, you kind of like swing off the cycle of, of, of change. And that's what I call recovery because now we're no longer thinking, oh, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. Just alcohol isn't a part of our life anymore. Now, good morning, good evening. Thank you guys for tuning in to the Uncovered Podcast with Nick and Femi. I am your co-host, Femi. Thank you, thank you. And I'm your co-host, Nick. Pleasure to have you here, man. Thank you so much, man. It's been such an honor to be on this podcast. Like, you know. So moving on, we've got uh, a beautiful... uh, (laughs) He rambles a bit, you know, and that's the feedback we've got from season one is, hey, I love your podcast, but... Can we give Nick a little bit less mic time? <laughs> yeah. So we've listened to your feedback, guys, and that's our aim for Twitter season two. Less Nick time on the mic. So uh, we're gonna see a deep, big decrease in listeners, man. Come on. So um nah, but go ahead. What are we gonna say? No, no, it's all good, man. I don't want to talk anymore. It's all good. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna win win. <laughs> okay, so the way that was, so today we've got a very special guest. That is uh to be honest, the topic is super interesting. And the person that we got to see, speak about it is uh, exceptional. I'm not going to introduce him because I've realized that people do a much better job of introducing themselves than Thank you, you do introducing. So, Thank you. So with that being said, Miss Tara, how are you going? I am really Welcome. well. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me here, guys. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I tell you what, that's a really fun intro. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, unique 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 i love it thank you thank you so you know tara people are probably wondering who are you Mm. what do you do Mm. what are we talking about today yeah for sure give a little bit of a rundown well i'm a psychologist and i've been working in the area of addiction treatment for about a decade now and yeah for the last three years i've had my company the tara clinic and Sure, my name is Tara, but Tara stands for Therapeutic Addiction Recovery Assistance. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, okay, a little sneaky. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> so did you make that own acronym up? Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> what can the A be? I didn't have A. Literally, literally, that's how it happened. I was driving along the M4 um, while I was at work and um, I was, yeah, just it was, it was, I was thinking, how am I going to create a really cool name that's interesting that, you know, is memorable for, for this business that I wanted to build. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Therapeutic addiction recovery is the first three letters of my name. What is, was my fourth, my second, <laughs> second A? a? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Therapeutic addiction recovery association. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Well, here's the thing. I the the logical answer would be Australia, yeah. right? But I didn't want to limit That's things to just being exactly. just being here in okay. in our nation because I want to be able to help people globally. Yeah. And it's it's limiting if my name literally has Australia in there. Yeah. So I, I sent out a message to all my friends and family and said, "Can you give me other A words, please?" Yeah. <laughs> so for the next three weeks, I had people randomly sending me a words. <laughs> <laughs> so remind us one, one more time, what does Tara stand for? Therapeutic yep. Addiction Recovery Assistance. That's amazing. Mm. Love that. You know what? It actually sounds nice. I wouldn't have actually known. So like, 
That's lit. Who said he came up? He came with the idea. Like after all, he takes the credit of the last day. Ah, well, I think there was about three or four people who specifically said assistance or assisting something around assist. I remember you asked me for that as well, and I said said assistance. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. So run the check. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Done>. <laughs> well, it's great because it was, you know, it's a collaborative effort to begin with and it's a collaborative effort moving forward. So yeah, bring it on. What made you even get into addiction? Like why you know, choosing this route? There's so many things you could have explored with psychology. What made you want to go into addiction? Yeah, mm. it's the most common question that I get asked because addiction treatment prior to what I'm doing hasn't been very sexy. No one really wants to do it. And uh, (laughs) literally the answer is the universe decided it. So little kind of backstory. When I was in, um, in uni, I was thinking, all right, I want to work with, you know, juvenile detention. And that was kind of what I was thinking. Um, and I finished my undergrad degree and I thought if I don't take some time off, I'm going to murder people. <laughs> so I figured I'd take some time off. And during that time, I sent out, you know, an empty CV to, you know, places that hadn't even opened like hospitals and clinics and psychology practices and said, look, let me clean your toilets just so that I can know what it feels like to be a psychologist because I don't want to do all of this extra training that I need to do after undergrad if I don't actually want to do it at the end because it's really hard. It's really, really hard work Mm. becoming a psychologist. Um, Yeah, and I uh, basically got uh got back into uni after doing you know some work experience and stuff with different different areas and i got a phone call uh three months into my second uni degree and the people said hey uh we've got your cv here from a little while ago and i'm thinking that was 18 months ago on paper and your (laughs) hospital wasn't even around then how do you still have this and i and they said you know are you still looking for a job and I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and they've gone, great, can you start on Friday? And I'm like, would you like to interview me? <laughs> and they've gone, yeah, all right, come in tomorrow. So I turn up. <laughs> like, uh, I might as well. I was, yeah. I was a oh, God. God. Have you killed anyone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boring. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I, I turned up and before I even walked through the door, they said, can you start on Friday? And I'm like, would you like to see my updated CV? I mean, I've done stuff since I sent you that letter. And they're flicking and they've gone, can you start on Friday? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I can. What am I? doing and they said we need you to run the inpatient addiction treatment program here because the person we had lined up something's fallen out and we need someone to start on friday and i said yeah sure totally what (laughs) (laughs) and yeah they handed me a book and i you know i was co-facilitating for a few for a few groups to kind of learn how to do it and how to run and how to manage adults in an inpatient setting because at the time I was doing a placement in a primary school. So it was very different in terms of experience. Within three weeks, I fell in love with the presentation of addiction treatment. People with addiction concerns in their life are so cool. They're so, um, they're so smart, resourceful, interesting, interested in finding out information because Addiction isn't about being weak or defective or all those sorts of things. And it Mm. definitely doesn't discriminate. You can be a CEO of a large corporate organization, or you can be someone who has, you know, um, not continued their schooling after year seven and or everywhere in between. 
but what what I found is that these individual people are really just wanting to find a way to cope with big feelings that they haven't been taught how to do. And using a substance or doing a behaviour is a really great way of of handling a big feeling because it's instant. You know, it's an instant gratification experience. That's so interesting. So, like, what actually is addiction though? Because I think a lot of people need to to be able to recognise when they're feeling addicted when they've got an addiction, because you're saying that it could be anyone, right? Mm-hmm. And here's so many people go through, look, I, you know, I, I like to do a bit of this and that on the weekend, mm-hmm. but I can quit anytime. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? I'm not I, addicted. I'm not addicted. You know what I mean? Oh, I only, yeah. yeah. How do we recognize the signs of addiction? Yeah. Mm. I, <laughs> in the past, I've actually read out the, the, the DSM's, um, uh, criteria for addiction, but really there's 12 criteria that you need to, you need to uh, meet at least two of them. So it's things like I'm using more or drinking more than what I originally had wanted to or um, or I'm needing more to get the same level of buzz or kick or, you know, right. experience. Uh, or the same amount doesn't give me the same feeling. So there's a tolerance that's been built up. Um, if there's multiple times where I have attempted to cut down or stop that have been unsuccessful, uh, you know, a lot of time is either spent thinking about using being intoxicated or coming down off a substance, then that's also one of those criteria. And when I when I actually read through the the criteria for alcohol, for instance, anytime I do that, people go, oh, shit. Hang on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. <laughs> but the big, the big one that's really important to be aware of is: is it actually becoming a problem for me? Mm. Do I see it as a problem, or do the people that are around me see it as a problem, or is it impacting on my ability to do school, work, life, relationships? Is it impacting on my health? You know, for example, if you have diabetes and you're drinking a lot of alcohol, that's a lot of sugar in the in the alcohol, so it could be impacting on your health. You know, yeah, yeah exactly. So when we're when essentially what addiction is is if continuing to do this behavior is harmful in some way and you've struggled to cut down or stop on your own. Yeah. Is it only substances though? Because I think you mentioned behaviours as well. Yeah, yeah. So DSM specifically, so the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual, which is kind of the like Bible Bible, of, yeah. 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 Oh, hell DSM. (laughs) I love it. Yes. Um, So it's... uh, it has just recently, well, when I say recently, I mean in its fifth edition, it's brought in gambling as a process addiction. So what process addiction means is it's a behavioural thing rather than a substance-specific thing. Mm. But there are loads of different things that could be considered addictions, right? You yeah. could have um, sex, uh, porn, uh, eating, exercise, uh there's there's a new one. Oh, it's got a really kind of interesting name. No, don't remember. <laughs> but there's this new one that's you become addicted to living a super healthy lifestyle, but it's so much so that it completely takes over everything else oh, in wow. your life. Yeah. So like more than a hypochondriac, like more like past the whole fear of being sick and just everything's got to be 
meticulously perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Like I will exercise for this time at this day oh, for right. this long okay. and I will eat this many calories in this way. And it's, and you could kind of, I mean, when I first read about it, I was thinking, are we leaning on the OCD kind That's of what space? I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it again, it kind of depends. I, I think a lot of mental health stuff can really sort of smush together in interesting That's ways. Exactly. Mm. And a lot of the time with addiction, it's addiction, well, in my opinion, addiction isn't the problem, it's a symptom of something else. Yeah. So the way that I work with people, for instance, is I help them to, you know, really build up skills and tools and strategies to be able to manage their experience of big feelings because a craving or a trigger or an urge, those they're really big feelings, right? I, I'm, I, yeah, they're big. So if you can handle that and then you've got other ways of coping with these big feelings other than drink, drugs, sex, whatever it may be, mm. then what we do is we go, all right, what was then the driver for the substance use yeah. previously? Mm. And then we start to explore that. So it could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be um, low self-esteem, it could be trauma history, you know, all of those different things then come up. So addiction treatment isn't just about stopping using a thing. It's actually, in my opinion, three steps. The first is teaching tools to manage big feelings. The second is the actual process of reducing or stopping whatever it is you want for your goal. Mm. And then the third is let's actually work out what the hell was going on in the first place mm. so that we can actually sort that out so that addiction doesn't have to come back. Yeah. Because if we don't sort that out, then what are we really doing? Yes. 100%. What would you say to people I think one that we hear a lot about, especially in like the corporate setting is coffee. Like a lot of people mm. feel like they can't function, they can't do anything without having a coffee. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to people like that? Because I almost feel like when people say they have a coffee addiction, it's kind of like glorified to an extent. It's like, oh yeah, that's not a bad thing, whatever. Yeah. But to an extent, it's like, well, if you can't function when you wake up and your energy levels are low, you wake up lethargic, you feel like you can't do anything without a coffee, then to me, that seems a little bit concerning. So what would you say to people that struggle and feel the need to have a coffee every single day. Yeah, I hear it completely. <laughs> um, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of judgment in this podcast. <laughs> we don't wear judgment pants. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I hate coffee. <laughs> Again, it's, if we're going to be in, uh, you know, a negative headspace or or we're struggling to be able to function like what you were saying, mm. then there might potentially be a problem there. Mm. The There's five stages of change though, right? So you've got the um, pre-contemplation stage of change, which is either denial or just a belief that there's, there's no way that this can be fixed, so why would I even bother? Mm. So those two things, like either there's not a problem or... I can't be helped, so I'm not going to bother kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's pre-contemplation. Then we've got contemplation, which is mm, there might be a problem. Not sure I'm ready to do anything about it yet, though, you know, I'll I'll acknowledge that there could be something here, right? Then you've got preparation, and preparation is where we've acknowledged that there's a problem and we're exploring uh, options around what we'd like to do about it or, or what we can do about it to to make some changes. Then we've got action. So action is putting those those changes in in into place and into action mm. <laughs> uh, to to make some steps towards doing something different. Mm. 
And then we've got maintenance, which is continuing to do the things that are helpful. Mm -hmm. If you continue to do the things that are helpful, you kind of like swing off the cycle of, of, of change. And that's what I call recovery because now we're no longer thinking, oh, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. Mm -hmm just alcohol isn't a part of our life anymore or, or, you know, coffee isn't a part of our life anymore. All right, whatever. Like, for example, for me, I don't drink coffee. I kind of never have, mainly because I used Same. to see my mum being like, oh, my God, don't talk to me until I've had my six coffees. I'm like, okay. Do you know, just a side note. Oh, do you look, know, oh my God. Look. Oh, here we are. <laughs> here we <go. laughs> Can we move on? <laughs> just for the record, I don't drink coffee. I never drink coffee. Everyone, guys, I please never watch drink. The, please watch the YouTube video, guys. Listen, listen, listen. <laughs> I never drank coffee until I met this guy. Oh, oh wow. Wait, started, you, didn't you say that you guys were friends from five? Oh, my gosh. Speak to the people. Since speak to the people. Since we started working consistently <laughs> with this guy, <laughs> and then now it became a social thing. You know how you become a social smoker? Yeah. I became a social coffee drinker. But only in the last, what? I don't Two know, weeks. man. I actually know nothing about this. It's crazy, but, but I've only had it like maybe like four times in two weeks because I felt very judged and I needed to explain that. Just anyway, continue on with your podcast, guys. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Well, I'm really sorry that you're feeling judged in this space. That's mm. definitely not our, our That's um, not, intention. Not by you, Tara. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, I'm so sorry oh. baby, that you feel judged. That's definitely not our intention of this <clears throat> podcast. Hey, Tara, next yeah. question. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Uh, well, just as just as a side note for your information is that the pre-contemplation stage, which is no change will happen, the main predictor of how long someone stays in that in that stage of change specifically is how much they feel or are shamed and given feelings of guilt. Mm. So when, you know, I, I quite often have clients come to me and say, you know, oh, my partner found out that I did whatever it was or, you know, my boss found something, you know, there's somehow there's like a find out thing mm. or even just their own internal sense of shame and guilt around what they're doing. Uh, all of those feelings of guilt and shame, what they do is they keep you in, in, in the action of doing the thing that you don't want to do. Yeah. So compassion is the most important key to recovery because unless we're compassionate with ourselves and with others, we're not going to be able to make change. That's so I just facts. thought I'd throw that in there, guys. That is facts, though. With everything, you got to always be, you got to give yourself a break. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I do have a question because I think we'll mention, I'm very curious, right? Because there's a lot of different types of people that you're mentioning. Mm. Are there a certain characteristic or is there a certain type of people or an event that is a consistent, like a common denominator? For people that have addiction, is it trauma? Is it difficult circumstances? Is it being on Ritalin as a child? You know how you hear that a lot. So, <laughs> sure. uh, so what's the what's the, what's the get it? Yeah. Well, look, I, uh, hmm, that was a lot of noises. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a challenging answer for me to give because, for example, uh, Gabo Mate. I think I pronounced his name right. He says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And that essentially is the driver of there. There is a, a kind of a hundred percent view that there must be some kind of trauma or yeah. pain in the history of the person mm. though. 
if if we think about what it's like to be a human being, yeah. we experience pain and disappointment and all of those sorts of things all the time right we can't not we're not wrapped in cotton wool we're not we don't have bubble wrap around us and we're not you know surrounded by cheerleaders all the time going yeah look how awesome you are you know we're we're told no you suck no this this wasn't done right we fall down we hurt ourselves all of that so it's not just those things right it's not it's not this equals that yeah. In my opinion, in my opinion, it's more if if someone has had a, a circumstances that they've been able to learn the tools and strategies to manage their experience of these feelings yeah. or they've been built up with their self-esteem in a positive and helpful way or those sorts of things, they're the safety factors to not move into addiction at some point in your life. If we haven't been taught those helpful things, the things that take longer but actually get us there in the end, right? Mm. If we haven't been taught those things, then our brain really, really wants to function at its best and it wants to feel good. Yeah. Because not feeling good means we could die. You know, back in the ug-ug days when we had saber-toothed tigers trying to kill us, Mm. if we were cold, we would die. If we were (laughs) hungry, we would die, right? Like all of those things, if we had a cut on our leg, we could die so by our brain saying all right i'm feeling discomfort right now i need to do something to not feel uncomfortable anymore and if i've learned that eating ice cream helps or uh you know getting um getting some alcohol or having a coffee or, you know, having a cigarette or gambling or having sex or all of those things, they all feel good because they release dopamine in the brain. And dopamine is uh, connected completely to our survival mechanism. So it's just this, it's a cycle of behaviors that when we're, when we're practicing that enough and because it's so instant gratification-y, that's a word, (laughs) (laughs) then our brain goes, oh, that's the quickest way to get there. Let's just do that again. Yeah, exactly. Rather than going the long way around. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually, that's really interesting. I was listening to Mastin Kip. I don't know if you're familiar with him. That's not a name I remember. Yeah, Mastin Kip is just a, well, not just, he, anyway, he he does a (laughs) podcast. He's, he's a American like personality and mental health. Um, And he was speaking a lot about how addiction is just the, it's just the symptom. It's not the actual disease, right? So it's kind of like, if you've got, I don't know, you've got, what do you have? You got terminal cancer, Mm -hmm. right? And you're in pain. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be sitting there addressing the immediate pain. You're trying to address the, the disease that is at, is at hand, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the main concern. That's the main treatment. That's probably a bad example, but whatever. You get the no, I get the, the you get the gist of what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's got an oncology experience. He's like, well, oh, uh. that's not actually how it works. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, what you need to do is you get the Delorean in there. <laughs> anyway, but but what I'm saying is that you have the disease, right? You're you're as a doctor, as a medical professional, or whatever. You're trying to address the disease rather than the um, the actual symptom. Mm. You may be doing things to mitigate the symptoms and make the reduce the pain, but the main thing has got to be addressing the root cause, mm. which is trauma. And I think tra- being able to be more trauma informed 
in everything that we do as professionals, as friends, socially, everything is going to be so important and absolute game changer in supporting each other. For sure. For sure. And I guess, you know, I, I don't subscribe to the disease model of addiction specifically because, uh, you know, addiction isn't something that you have it's something that you're living with it's an experience and when you can start to separate the person from the problem then you're able to actually look at it inside and out and up and down and you're you're always then bigger than the problem as well so a, a a main kind of focus of the disease model is within the 12 step program so uh they're the, I guess the focus of the 12-step program and the abstinence-based recovery is uh, I am an addict, I will always be an addict in order for me to remain sober. I need to continue doing these things, X, Y, and Z. And you go through those 12 steps and you continue to, to work the program. And uh, until you've, uh, basically, unless you work the program, you won't be sober is mm. is the the view or my understanding of the view of of the 12 step space mm. the the space that i and you know my business sort of sits in is more harm minimization and harm minimization is actually australia's drug policy as well so it, it kind of lines up more with that and essentially what harm minimization does is it goes okay what's the what's the risks that are present right now what's the highest risk Let's mitigate that first and then we'll go to the next one on the ladder and then the next one on the ladder and keep going down until we get to whatever goal you want. Mm. So I've had clients who are like, you know, um, coming to me for uh, alcohol and cocaine, which seems to be something that goes hand in hand a lot of a lot of the time in Sydney. Uh, side note, when you have cocaine and alcohol in your system together, it actually produces a third chemical compound that stops your heart. So it's really quite a dangerous thing to smush together. Um, oh, why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll crazy. just, I'll keep talking. <laughs> yeah, please. That is crazy. I don't know what's happening over here. <laughs> There's a a lot of people that need to listen to this podcast. Let's just say that. In Sydney, there's a lot of people. That's a lot of judgment for me. That's not fair. Mm, It's not judgment. It's like his health. I I wasn't looking at you like it was you. I was saying that there's a lot of people we know that could use (laughs) that information. I didn't know that, to be honest. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, and and a lot of times, um, you know, people will go to rehab because they've had some kind of heart event or health event. And, you know, that that can sometimes be why it's happened because the the body is really busy trying to handle all these different chemicals and things Mm. all at once. Um, But yeah, what I was saying about, about, you know, People will come to me saying, you know, cocaine and alcohol, but the problem is really cocaine. I don't want to stop drinking. I'm like, all right, cool, let's do that. And over time, what they then realize is, oh, actually, my cutoff point for alcohol, I thought it was six. Actually, it's more helpful if it's three. Mm. So now I'm just putting in a self-imposed limit of three per sitting and they can happily continue living their life because they understand what is uh, what's important to them what's healthy for them, what's helpful for them, and they've got the skills and tools to manage it so that they're making an educated decision around what they're doing rather than being a puppet on the string and just doing what you've always done. Because a lot of the time, if we go back to the coffee example that you were saying, is a lot of time people have the habit that when I wake up, 
I pee, I brush my teeth, I put the coffee on and I sit and have a coffee. You know, that just becomes like a, a ritual and it might not necessarily be the coffee itself that they're wanting. It's that it, the coffee is the time that they're sitting down for the moment to mm. read the paper or have their mindfulness experience or yeah. whatever it is. And it's it's almost like, uh, I guess what you were saying about it being a social thing, you know, um, a lot of the times people who are in nursing, I mean, I just think of, of my sister and my brother-in-law, they were in emergency at Liverpool Hospital when they oh, met. Yeah, yeah, it was intense. And the only way that they could get a break was to go out and have a cigarette. Um, um, so obviously we've spoken a lot about, you know, what addiction is and how it presents. How can we help someone that's battling addiction? What's our role? Like not even just as health professionals, but even just like as a friend or family member, like how can we support? It's such a good question. Oh. <sighs> My answer is probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable to hear, though focus on yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you focus on yourself and you are maintaining your own sense of stability and boundaries and communicating effectively and asking for your needs to be met and, and uh, I guess when you're communicating your boundaries and you're maintaining those boundaries, so if something goes outside of, of, of what you're okay with, well, then it's, it's not that you shift your boundaries it's no that's not okay because a lot of the time the the uh, like the line between supporting and enabling is so fine yeah, yeah. that i personally don't work with family and friends of people with addiction because i struggle to see where that line is mm. and that's why there's you know there are some professionals out there that specifically work with people who are friends and family of um there's a, a really great phone line that i love that is for people who are experiencing drug and alcohol concerns for themselves and they would like some sort of on-hand free counseling or uh, for people who are just wanting information about drug and alcohol stuff mm. or for family and friends of people and they're wanting some help and guidance around how to manage a situation. Mm. And the phone line is called uh, the Alcohol and Drug Information Service, so ADIS. They have a national line now. Ooh, do I remember it? I think it's 1-800-250-015, pretty sure. Well, we'll put on the show notes anyway, so if anyone yeah. wants to make contact, then that's a fantastic resource to have that'd be great yeah because they're so good so it doesn't matter what state you're in it will just sync you up to the the uh like the hotline in your state oh, great. and what they also do is they have a database of referral options mm. so if you're if you're you know concerned about your own experience of, of drug and alcohol or you know you have a friend and family member who is experiencing addiction you can call them and say all right you know this is my budget this is where i'm at what services are available close to me and within that budget so there's free services as well as private services there's inpatient there's outpatient there's a lot of different options available though actually when i say there's a lot of different options available there's not a lot of space in all of those places mm, yeah. so yes. that tends to be the biggest challenge that yes. we find mm. <laughs> yes, yes. yeah it's hard it's hard so i guess you know uh accessing um 
actually, another thing that, that family and friends can do is they can go to a SMART recovery meeting. So SMART stands for self-management and recovery training. And uh, it's been, it started in America, but it came over to Australia uh, quite a while now. So there's, there's a lot more groups than there were probably five years ago. Still not as many as AA and NA. Um, and if, if you, if, if anyone in your audience is more aligned to the 12 step program, so wanting to, to, to kind of align with that, there's a really great um, family support service within the 12 step program called Al-Anon. And Al-Anon, they do groups and meetings and things for family and friends of people who are experiencing addiction. So you can, you can attend that. Uh, but yeah, at Smart Recovery, you can go to that uh, as as a, a friend or family member to kind of understand or learn or you could take them with you and then the two of you can go together so you can learn and get help at the same time yeah i think that's really interesting what do you do though if for example well do these resources cover if the situation is look this person doesn't want any help mm. he doesn't doesn't even recognize there's an issue mm -hmm. but he's very much so in danger right like i can see that he's doing harm to himself and this can escalate at any point in time. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe calling the, you've called the ambulance a few times and they're going to come in and say, well, he's not in danger now, so there's nothing I can do. Yes. So what do we, what, what do they do in that situation? Because we see that a lot in the hospital. So what's the, what's the, what's the steps there? <sighs> <laughs> That's a big question. It is it's though, a huge question. Though the, the problematic answer is unfortunately, you can't do anything. Mm. The only way, so um, in in the hospital, in in mental health, uh, there's there's sort of you know you can schedule someone. So that means that they're they're placed into. I mean, I'm probably using the poor terminology, but like a, a locked ward where they must stay and remain until they're released and discharged by the treating psychiatrist to make sure that they're not a harm to themselves or others. Yeah. Uh, only really in the last, I don't know, eight years or so, seven years, they now have a few beds of that type of space within the drug and alcohol space in New South Wales. Um, I think they're in Orange and I think there might be 12 beds in Orange, I think. Don't quote me. Mm. Though that's that's the extent of what I think there might there might actually be four beds in Sydney. So I think it's four beds in Sydney and 12 in Orange from memory. That are locked and compulsory. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Wow. And so involuntary the, drug and alcohol. Yeah. And oh. the way that you get there, well, when, when it was first introduced, it may have changed now, though when it was first introduced, the way that you end up there is after multiple uh, emergency admissions as a result of the risk to self or risk to others um, under the influence of drugs and alcohol. So it, it's like the criteria is yeah. a lot higher than it is in a, you know, a mental health locked ward, as an example. That, that that's very interesting um and speaking freely it seems very problematic because it's it's a situation that we hear over and over and over again from families and from people and the loved ones of people that are um have substance um, abuse issues it's like why does it have to get to the point of mm. crisis not just once but multiple times before something can actually get done by the 
by the government, the people that actually have the power to help this person. Mm -hmm. So I know that, you know, you don't have the answer. You don't have the answer. None of us have the answer, you know, Scott Morrison, if you're listening to this, <laughs> hey, a few more beds, please. But yeah. Yeah. no, but like it's a serious issue, right? Because we see, I see it all the time. Even when I, cause even when I'm at work, I see it happening so time and time again, they'll bring somebody in. They've convinced this person to, to come in and speak to someone, right? And obviously we're mental health and then there's a lot of like discrepancies about it's appropriate. Yeah, I mean, it's appropriateness. Um, and then that person's five minutes in, he's like, no, I'm over it and I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this person's gonna, something's gonna happen. And by the time it happens, then you'll be like, oh, we should have done something. Mm. But there's, but it's, it's difficult because we can't do anything. And also the family can't do anything. Mm. So, I don't know. I know I'm just like venting and ranting yeah. right now, but I think that it's something that's very, very sad because not even just for drug and alcohol as well. There's so like the system is also very difficult at times for mental health support as well. Um, so, but I think it's good nonetheless. So like, even though you're just venting and you're just having a free conversation, at least that recognition for anyone that's listening, because yeah. some people might have the notion that, you know, health professionals, they don't care. They don't understand. They don't want to do anything. But as long as like people can hear from us, that you know, we recognize that there's a problem here yeah. and we're trying our best, things are out of our control, then I think that's quite refreshing for some people anyway. So yeah. I think it's worth the two minute event. I completely agree with mm. you. I'm making up the numbers. So, you know, if Scott Morrison is listening. <laughs> he is, he follows me on Instagram. Making... We're gonna send it to him on LinkedIn. Scott Morrison official one follows me. Watch out, here we go. <laughs> he asked me for my bank details for some reason. I don't know, he's like. I don't know how I feel about that. He's like, oh, do you want the new government rebate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say is, let's just say a hundred million dollars is in the budget for mental health and addiction treatment. $80 million goes to mental health and 20 goes to drug and alcohol. Mm. So what do you expect? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because exactly. it's such a big budget for mental health that sometimes you yeah. wonder, you're like, mm, what are they act? Uh, what are they actually doing? Yeah, look, that's a, that's that's a, a whole big massive conversation. conversation. Maybe we could have another podcast on that, maybe. That'd Honestly. But look, when you got, hey, look, this is going to get controversial. But Here when you got uh, certain public servants that are in the ministry on 600K, 700K for, oh, this, gosh. New, for this new project. Oh, gosh. Oh, okay, we're going to build yeah. we're gonna build this 12-bed unit whoa, somewhere whoa, 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 whoa. and the GM's he's on 650K. Going there. Oh, he's actually going there. Oh, God. That's a lot of the budget for one person. Oh God. <laughs> but that's a real, real issue. That's a real, real issue that like, I, I don't think people are ready to have that conversation, but I don't get me wrong. I feel like I understand the pressure and the difficulty of being a GM of such a big project because it's not easy and you need to get the best and to be able to get the best money talks at the end of the day oh, but but seriously though like these budgets the, yeah, the budgets geez. are hard um and it's a hard it's a hard problem to fix mm. so i don't know how we're going to fix it or if we can fix it but um you know people like you like our program as well trying to do our best to be able to give people different options to be able to do that if they can do that is, yeah. is, is super super powerful definitely absolutely i mean it's it's interesting actually I I originally wanted to open a rehab for people just released from prison. That was that that population is is 
I just love working with with people in 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 that space. And as I was thinking about how am I going to do this, all I could think of was I'm not going to get budget for this. The government mm. doesn't have it to give to me and Ooh. if they give it to me then they're taking it out of someone else's budget which is already underfunded and over over um used mm. so i i basically created my business plan in a similar way to how elon musk does tesla where you start with a more premium product and then use the profits from that to then be able to funnel down towards being able to bring uh, rehabs and so services yeah. and supports for people who don't have the money to pay for it yes. so that you also uh, my my aim I don't know how I'm going to do it but my aim is to not have to rely on government funding because when when you have to rely on certain funding whether it's investors or or government you still need to be um, specific to what their needs are rather than specifically the clients. Yeah. And that's that's the trickiest part, I think. Have you heard of the concept of having like clients, no, not like almost have like self-funded scholarships almost. So mm. like basically a client that is affluent, yes. right? They're, they're aware that their price is higher, yes. but it's in order to be able to give an opportunity to somebody who otherwise wouldn't have been able to have access to that. Yes. Have you heard of that? And like, what are your thoughts on that? That's that's also going to be part of what, what we'll put in place down the track as well, where you can sponsor someone yeah. to attend, uh, you know, either half the program or the full program, you know, and then depending on how, how those, uh, you know, opportunities kind of arise will depend on how many people can actually access the this the same support for free or if they have like a, a lesser uh, financial investment that they individually need to do it's yeah it, that's definitely coming down the track and I mean you know the moment that someone starts saying to me hey I'd really like to be able to offer this to someone else can I pay twice then there you go already yeah, exactly. I've got someone I can just slot them straight in yeah yeah that's perfect Awesome. But that was interesting. I was like, oh, it might change the whole direction of this podcast, but. <laughs> no, no, it was sick. It was so, sick. what was I going to say? So how do you, for people that, because Femi was asking a question about people that recognize it. And obviously we were saying that, unfortunately, we, there's not really much we can do. But how do you feel then? Because I feel like, obviously, as like a family member, as a friend, you, you know, as a part of the relationship, you have concerns for the person. So you still don't like that feeling of feeling like quite hopeless and there's not mm. much I can do. So what can we do? I mean, I know you said we can't do, but how's the well, way that you we kind get- of can? Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, the blanket statement of you can't do anything was probably really me mis misspeaking. Mm. What you can do is remain 100% non-judgmental mm -hmm. at all times, be interested and be there to support someone. However, that doesn't mean that you need to bend over backwards the moment that they say, I need $100 to, to get drugs again. Mm. You can say no to someone. Mm. Like no is a legitimate answer. Mm. That's very hard, very hard for people who love that person or perhaps are the parents of that person, though that's where it becomes enabling, right? And a lot of people say to me, well, what am I supposed to do if if I don't give them the money or if they don't use here at the home, then they they might, you know. Do something dangerous to get yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that is, that is true, though at the same time, that's not the only option. 
There could be another option, which is perhaps if it's not as easy to access, then perhaps they might be ready to actually make some changes. So being able to have a conversation with the people that you love around, would you like me to come with you? to a smart recovery meeting or how about we go together to X, Y, and Z and make it more of a a community kind of everybody's hugging together and moving towards the the outcome that we're after. Um, But yeah, you know, it's... eh. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. And mm. again, like I said, I don't, I don't tend to personally work with people who are friends and family because that line so thin. Oh, mm. smudgy is everything. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's pretend, okay, I'm not a family member. I am actually the person that's going through the yep. situation. I'm sitting in front of you, Tara, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, what would you say to me? What are the key steps that I need to take to overcome this issue? Like my starting, my starting point. Cool. I, I've just realized, oh shit, I've got alcohol dependence or cocaine dependence, whatever it is, this is my situation. What are you saying to me? Get it. The very first thing that I do is I actually teach you about the brain. And the reason that I do that is because really there's three main parts of the brain. You've got the back bit, which is the part that keeps us alive. So needing to pee and poo, sex drive, um, temperature control, heart rate, all that stuff, right? At the front of the brain is where we've got all of our higher order thinking, logic, problem solving, memory, language, personality, all that real human-y kind of stuff. In the middle attached to the bit that keeps us alive is really our fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn response. And it's in there that uh, the chemicals come out into the brain, which I call mush. It's basically just a whole heap of chemicals that switch on everything that I need to run away or fight the tiger and switch off everything I don't need to run away and fight the tiger. The reason I explain that is because when mush is present in our brain, the front part of our brain, the logic part of our brain actually goes to sleep. And it does that for a really, really important reason. If I'm in my cave and a saber-toothed tiger is in front of me wanting to eat me, if I go, hey, um, Nick, when when you last ran away from this guy, did you did you take the the left route or the right route? How come? How am I going? If I have that conversation with you, mm. I'm going to be eaten ten times yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. It's not helpful for me to use this part of the brain. Yeah. So the fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn response just kicks in without us necessarily exactly. So I will either try to kill the thing, or run away from the thing, or hide from the thing, or whatever it is. So the same thing happens when we're craving or when we're stressed or when we have any kind of big emotion, our brain sees it as a tiger that's about to kill us. So what it does is it switches off the logical part of the brain. Now the brain has two reset buttons. The first is if you think about killing a tiger or running away from it and getting away, we're moving our body really intensely for a period of time and then we're relaxed. Sounds like exercise, right? Mm. So physically moving our body is our brain's natural reset button that then switches on the front part of our brain again, which gives us the opportunity to actually think things through or do some problem solving or come up with a different solution. So the more that we can manage our mush in in a, a preparation kind of way, uh, the better. I had a lot of clients who say, well, I go to the gym every day or I'm a marathon. This was the best. This is the best one. I'm a marathon runner. I run 50 Ks every week. How much more exercise am I supposed to do? 
And I said, okay, sure. Your 50Ks is the same as me getting out of bed and walking down my stairs two levels down and going to the car. You know, it's not actually impacting my brain in in a way of I need to run away from this tiger or I need to kill it because I'm going to die. Yeah. Right. So for that person, I was making suggestions like maybe doing a boxing class or go for a swim or do yoga. Right. Anything that's different in a safe way, obviously. Make sure you check with your professionals that you know you're not going to disclaimer, 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 check. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we cannot be sued for this. <laughs> but doing something that's different that that shocks your brain into mm. thinking, because again, if you're walking out in in the bush. And, you know, back in, again, the ug ug days and the tiger wouldn't say, just so you know, at three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, when you walk past that specific tree, I'm going to come out. You know, it won't. It just does it as a surprise. So it's the shock value of doing something completely different that actually uses up the mush. Mm. Interesting. That's really, really interesting. So once you've spoken to them about the brain and then we've, you've spoken about exercise now, yep. what are some other like modalities or strategies that you then implement for some someone to do um, in order to continue their journey? Or even more interesting enough, once they've actually finished yeah, their session with you, yes. what do you give them to do for to make it sustainable for them? Great. So the second thing is the second reset button, and that's mindfulness practice. Mm. The more present we are, the more we're able to see our feelings, see our physical sensations, see our words and see our thoughts. Mm. And when we're present enough to be able to see all of those things, mm. then we can actually make an active decision about what we want to do with that. Mm. The first piece of homework that I usually give clients, I mean, you know, it's a bit different in, in the programs. Oh, actually, no, it's the same in the programs. Anyway, uh, the first piece of the first um, homework task that I give people is to actually monitor their drink and drug use and log it in an app or write it down before. So, for example, if it's alcohol, that you log the drink that you're having containing alcohol before you either um, order it, accept it or pour it. And then what that's doing is it's already starting to create a bit of space between the automatic flow yeah. of just keep uh, pouring or just go up to the bar and get seven and come back mm, or, mm. you know, whatever it is. And, and what it means is you're, you're actively understanding how much you're actually consuming yeah. because we tend to minimize, yeah. right? We, we, we overgeneralize uh, or we exaggerate how much good stuff we're doing and we minimize how much of the stuff we don't really want to be doing, mm, right? right? So by being able to see, oh, actually this week I had on average 15 drinks a, d a night, I didn't realize it was that intense. So just being able to see that is really helpful so that we're wearing our reality pants. Mm. <laughs> then the next thing is understanding that our words mirror our thoughts, our thoughts impact on our beliefs and our actions and outcomes come from all of those things. So I kind of draw it like a tree. So our beliefs are the root system of the tree. If we have healthy root system, then everything else is going to work really well. If we don't have very healthy root system, everything else is probably going to be a bit dodgy. Yeah. So our thoughts is the trunk, the leaves are our words and the fruits are our actions. Mm. So if I have really healthy roots, my trunk is going to be really sturdy, 
my leaves are going to be lush, my fruit's going to be yummy and juicy. And no matter how much wind comes at me and the wind is feelings, right? Doesn't matter how much wind comes at me, I can kind of flow with that. But if I don't have very healthy um, leaves, fruit, trunk or uh, roots, then a little puff of wind could make me fall over. So a big part of what I do with people is simply changing people's language. Mm. That's super powerful. I think that like we've said, you've said so much amazing things today, Tara. <laughs> Cheers. I mean, I'm impressed. <laughs> but I want us to like, if we had to summarize it right into mm. one piece of advice, something that's like, you know, look, you know, the sh- you have a, at the back of a book, you have a little bit of a synopsis. Mm. If you were to say, look, all, all that is great, but one thing that you would tell somebody that's going through it or a family member or anyone that wants to know anything about addiction, what would you say? <laughs> you know that my Empowered Recovery program is 65 sessions. Oh, is it? <laughs> well, I guess the answer uh, is <laughs> sign up for the Tar Clinic. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just trying to think what on yeah. earth would be one thing. Okay, here we are. All right. There's so many. All right. (laughs) Urge surfing. Mm. Urge surfing is uh, if you see a wave, whether it's a sound wave, a light wave or a wave in the ocean, they're all pretty much the same. They go up, they peak and they come down and they trough and then they go up and they peak and they go down and they trough, right? That's the same thing that happens with any kind of physical sensation, emotion, feeling, all of those things, as well as cravings and urges. Side note, there's a difference between a craving and an urge. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, what's, what's – I usually do this visually. How am I going to do this in words? Okay. What tends to happen with people is the more you practice drinking or using or doing the behaviour that – that is your addictive behavior. What happens is, is the point at which you feel like you can't go any further up, the feeling kind of um, line starts to drop lower. So you'll pick up your, so for example, if I'm experiencing a craving for alcohol and at the very peak of that, I feel like I'm going to explode, like the, the world is going to end and it's really horrible. So I, I don't ever, my brain doesn't ever want to get to that top bit, right? So I'll drink before that. And then over time, I'll drink earlier and then I'll drink earlier and drink earlier. And I don't mean earlier in terms of time of the day. I mean earlier in terms of when I feel the craving. So instead of craving for 20 minutes, I might crave for 10 minutes or then I might crave for three minutes. Or then for a lot of people, they go, I don't even know, I don't even crave, like, I don't know what you're talking about, this craving thing. And I'm saying, yeah, that's because the moment you experience the sensation, you straight away use. So what what you're teaching your brain is the only way to handle this feeling is by drinking or using. So a big part of what the, um, the uh, urge surfing is all about is becoming comfortable with the discomfort of a craving so that you can ride the wave over because it will always subside. Mm. 
A craving only lasts for seven minutes and the only thing that's stronger than your brain chemistry is your mind. So if you focus on it, it'll last forever. But if you distract yourself and you do something that's really interesting or, you know, all-encompassing, then you won't even remember that you had an urge a moment ago. Um, You know, there's, uh, yeah, that's that's just a little tip, I guess. But, um, yeah, the, the best way to to move forward is to become comfortable with discomfort. Yeah. I love that. That was great. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I know that you were like, oh, what can I say? But I think that's, that's a that perfect was way perfect. to summarize it. Cool. Awesome. Well, I've really loved this podcast. Like I've learned so much and I'm sure that our listeners that are listening to this podcast will learn so much from it as well because it's such such gold nuggets that we got from this podcast and we're definitely going to share it. So I hope a lot of people get excited for that. But if people want to continue to engage with you, they want to know more about you, where's the best place for people to reach you? Well, I'm kind of everywhere uh, and at the Tara Clinic. Mm. So, yeah, um, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever, or the website, thetaraclinic.com. And, uh, yeah, you can either book in for a free call and have a chat about what different options are best for you and, uh, yeah, or just get in touch through socials. And I'm more than happy to have a chat. Awesome, awesome, Amazing. awesome. And you guys already know where to find us at everything Nick and Femi. If you guys are interested as well, we're in our program at rechargewellness.com.au. Click get started. And yeah, also we have a free chat and we'll get on the phone and see if it makes sense for you as well. So yeah, really, really excited. I, I, I really loved that. I really, really loved that. So thank you so much, Tara, for being here. I can't, I can't thank you enough. Really. Thank you both. Awesome, awesome. We'll see you guys next week. Peace and love.